Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time, 170. Adam Collins with you and sat next to me back in Tooting, back in his living room underneath the Douglas Jardine portrait. It's none other than Daniel Norcross. Welcome back to the program. Oh, I've missed you all. It's been a while. I think my last one was with Borat. Oh, yes. Borat Sunderace. And we had a, that was we had a lengthy one. That's when the <laughs> lunatics were allowed to take over the asylum. You're going to be yeah. doing an awful lot more final word stuff in the next few weeks. But um, he's, well, actually, now I come to think of it, we're recording this before the Rajkot Test Match. And you're going to be doing a couple of daily shows during the Rajkot Test Match. So we're mixing with time and space here. But it's a gorgeous... February sunny day mm. in South London. I love I love winter sunny days over here. They hit different, beautiful. Yeah, especially right about now in February, the light has changed. The yeah. sun's not quite so low in the sky. You're getting that little hint of spring. The snowdrops are out. The daffodils are out. <laughs> and you know what? I think we're now in January 1944. I was going to ask, where are we? We've, yeah. we've passed, well, we're well and truly past midway, aren't we? We're well and truly past yeah. midway. We are hurtling towards D-Day. Aren't we just? Which will be happening at the time of recording in around about a week to eight days' time. The the difficulty, of course, for people who go through this, um, this thing, which is my winter survival technique by turning... Each year, each year of the Second World War into a month of the win- English winter, from October to March inclusive, is that it's a leap year. So there's an ah, extra yes. extra day to endure, kids. There's uh, a test match starting on the 29th of February as well, just to make things more interesting. Jeff and I will be at Wellington for that. And so what happens then when you get the anniversaries? Because let's say somebody like gets the fastest 100 or mm. takes four wickets in five balls. Then... 
that's a bit like in the Pirates of Penzance, isn't it? When the guy is is born on the 29th of February and the whole <laughs> shtick is that he's not allowed to come into his inheritance until his 21st birthday, which would mean when he was 80 or 84 or something. Uh, that that's kind of ludicrous premise of that. So, what is what does the anniversary count as? The following year is the is it the first of March? Do they do well, it? Well, you know, there was there's an Australian cricketer at the moment who's only eight on this basis. Turns nine on the 29th of February. Sean Abbott. It's a 20, is, is he a 29th? He is, is he? Yeah. Sean Abbott. So they don't... It, it's, it, you know what this is? This is uh, content for a nerd pledge at some point, I think. Oh, don't encourage him. <laughs> it's, it's the stuff that's happened on 29 February. Is right $2.92. Up, yeah, something like that. It'd be a way, yeah. of, way of getting it together with an appropriate clue and we'd be able to work that out from there. That is the name of the game. I have got my computer propped up on the Bernard Shaw Complete Works. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, you chose that instead of Vitalogy, I noticed. Uh, or, or also ahead of Who's Who 1997, which I think has been on your shelf since 1997. Yeah, it has. I, I started pulling it down, but there was so much dust. I didn't oh, know. it's ridiculous. I don't know why I've got 1997s of all the years. Mm. What happened in 1996 of note? Nothing really, but my, my, my dad's in one of them, and, ah. and I think it's he's in that one. And so for some bizarre reason, it means that you keep an entirely massive book <laughs> just because your dad's name in about five lines is written underneath it. It's quite nice that he got a, got a gong yeah, in there. Not sweet, for nothing. Yeah. And 77 Wisdom. So I didn't pick that. I, well, I did pick it at random. It was the first one I reached out for. But I, I know that that's significant for you because 76 mm. is your first year of being aware of your surroundings and watching cricket. And what a summer it was in South London here, the, the burnt off ground and Viv Richards and so was on. There, Oval Test Match, 1976. I was there to see... Dennis Amos get out for 203 and mm. I saw that magnificent first wicket partnership of West Indies didn't enforce the follow-on and scored from memory 186 for none thrashed it to all parts about 35 overs and then put England <laughs> back in it's quite old school because in those days everyone enforced the follow-on yeah. but it was so hot that summer and West Indies got like 650 and then in England they got 400 so even Michael Holding and Andy Roberts decided they could do with a rest for a couple of hours because it was it was baking it was absolutely magnificent as you say and Michael Holding was running in from the very boundaries edge he, I don't, he didn't do it every ball but he did it a couple of times and it was such a nakedly obviously intimidatory tactic but it worked so well it was so theatrically marvellous uh, I got I got burnt from head to toe. I just didn't move a muscle, apparently, for the seven hours. <laughs> I like how we often have 76 over here signposted as the summer of summers because of how hot it was compared to all the others, when now every summer that we experience yeah. on average is hotter than 1976 over here and people just... It's weird, it? to, Oh, well, that's just... Because we had one, was it, was it two years ago, three years ago, the unbelievably hot summer? Yeah, that was, 20, the one that, we're, I know, it's the one where Winnie got chicken pox. It would have been the summer of uh, 2021, I think. 21. It could have been 22, but you're right. It's not that long ago. Yeah, and it was really, really hot. But no one has that down in folklore, do they? No. That was the one where British people had to be told how not to die of heat stroke. Mm. And they were told, don't open the windows and close all your curtains. And this came as an utter revelation to the English who thought, well, it's really hot, we'll open the windows. No, mate, yeah, your, your house is suddenly going to get really boiling. When I first came over here to spend any meaningful time was during the 2005 Ashes, which was another pretty hot summer. At least one stretch of time when I was in London was, was so hot that the tube was unbearable. And I was young enough and ignorant enough to do that whole, okay, this is hot. Every fucking day in summer. Now I've learned that the uh, architecture in Australia is set up for warm weather mm. or the, the infrastructure is probably the better word well, for also it. also the humidity, you see. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that people just don't appreciate about London especially is that 
It's one of the most humid places in Europe, and we're very low-lying. So in winter, if the temperature's two degrees, that will feel like about minus 10 in Colorado <laughs> because the humidity's dreadful. And right. when it's 30 degrees, that'll feel like 40 because yeah. the humidity's dreadful. And nobody can kind of get their head around this. I remember explaining to my wife how it's more humid in December than it is in June, July, and she was having none of it. And, of course, we Google it. Average humidity in London in like December is like 78%. And if you make that quite chilly, it's appalling. I, my brother lives in Colorado, and I spent time with him up this mountain in Colorado. And the thermometer outside literally said minus 35. It was dry as anything. I didn't feel it. Standing outside having a fag, no, no trouble at all. If it's minus three here, it's, you just like want to curl up in a ball and cry. It's, it's terrible. It's heart rending and it gives you chest infections and makes everybody ill and makes this is why we have this stupid system of thinking when is it going to be april we're not when? far away when and jeff and i were, <laughs> jeff and i were recording the, the weekly show earlier today and we referred to the the county seasonality being two months away oh, and sorry busy shopping and you know it's that time of year chemo roach science he tends to do it this time of year aaron hardy aaron hardy that's a great get mm, that is very a, good isn't it he'll be in the test team fairly soon well, we'll soon. be united on comms, hopefully, won't we? We will. We'll Early be doing... Yeah. yeah, we will. I think we're doing the entire season for Surrey, aren't we? Because the way yeah, our diaries work like this year. It's looking like very that pleasant. Way. Very pleasant. Very pleasant. A couple of miles up the road from here. Going for the three-peat. Uh, right, well, we should crack on. It is Nerd mm-hmm. Pledge, the game we play with our listeners, where numbers are sent in. If you're new to the show, it's a history program, our usually weekend show, although this might go out on a Monday, depending on when the Rajkot and Perth Test matches end, uh, where these numbers correspond with a cricketing feat of some description, and it supports us, and in turn, we're able to invest ridiculous amounts of time uh, researching this weekend show. It's a virtuous cycle. We have six new numbers to deal with today, provided we have enough time to record all of them before I have to rush off and get Winnie from nursery. The first of which is from a well-known uh, well-known member of the uh, cricket internet community, WG Rumble Pants, who the WG in reference to, he uh, has a WG Grace costume that he wears to cricket, and thus WG. And face, let's face and it. And face, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does, does both sides. 455 GBP. He's been with us for a number of years, so it's a re-up from him, so thank you, WG. The clue for you, Daniel, just made a new 455 pledge to honour a, a real Really dusty, but lucky in capitals, but lucky, which feels like that's the important part of the clue. Old bastard from the top hat days with a tail enders connection, right? So that must be in reference to the the wonderful tail enders podcast, which uh, which is a pod that we enjoy as well. Okay, I gave this one to you, Daniel. Well, firstly, can I thank Rumble Pants for sending in a decipherable clue? Yeah, absolutely. And I love it's a big part it. of this. If, if you can if you can use the clue to work out what's going on, you're mm-hmm. through to the semis without dropping a set. Absolutely. And um, I'm delighted to say that I've nailed all three numbers today, but some caused me agonising pain, which I'll come on to later. (laughs) This one caused me great pleasure because the clue was lovely. It didn't give it away. And in the search for this person, I found somebody I didn't know about. So, I mean, I'd, I'd heard the name, but I didn't know about this person. I had I have one of them coming up at the very end of the show. We, oh, cap, we capped the show with another DAP who I was able to work it out from the clue, and it's a corker of a story. So, we're, we're going right, so to we're we're buffet the show with two of these. Oh, so, this is great. In fact, you know what? DC, play the music. So... Um, Let's take you through the clue first. Obviously, Dusty. Obviously, old Top Hat. And Top Hat's taking me pre-1877. 
because by the time you get to the test match era, they're not really wearing the top hats anymore. So we're into the All England eleven. We're into oh, yeah, uh, yeah, into yeah. Kent. We're into Lumpy Stevens. We're into Alfred Min territory. Mm. I'm, I'm get figuring. those pads on, Minzy. Exactly. Well, you end up on top of a fucking cart from Leicester to London, where they were dragged away with his leg nearly fell off. Well, do you know? I wonder was Lester, wasn't if it? that was the inspiration for one of the many inventions of our man here. Oh, oh. That's the old bastard. Okay. Because there's another clue in here, and the one that sent me in the right direction. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take you around the houses here, because Rumbles was very helpful. He's very lucky. He said, "Lucky" in capital letters, and um, tailenders. And tailenders is matching. It's Greg James. It's Jimmy Anderson, and all of them are in their own way blessed and lucky. But there's now so lucky as a man called Felix, because Felix is, of course, lucky. It's, uh, it, it's Latin for lucky. Oh, I didn't know that. From which we get felicitations and oh, such Oh, right, like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. lucky. Okay. lucky. And Does that suggest Felix the Cat? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, Felix the Cat. He has nine lives, you see. He's, uh, uh, yeah, he's, okay. he's a lucky bastard. Okay. So he's a lucky dusty and he's lucky bastard. because he's a fucking rock star as well, right? I mean, uh, Well, yeah. I've, lucky on mul- multiple levels. He's made some of it, but yeah, he's a lucky bastard. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying he hasn't um, made his luck. Most no. people do. Um, yeah. He's made the most of the I lucky. I would call time. him. A, he's probably the most returning. I think we've had him on three or four times on the final word for different projects of his. So, oh, lovely. Yeah, he, he'd be um, one of our most well-returned guests. Well, it's he that that is the key. For his name is Felix, and our man it went by the name of Felix. Went by the name of Nicholas Felix. But his real name was Nicholas Vanastracht, right? Now, there are a couple of reasons why people might try to avoid a German name. But <laughs> actually, when he was born, which I think it was 1804, there was no massive need to avoid being German. I mean, yeah. the, the... Have a pretty British, good run towards the back end of the yeah. 19th century. British royal family, very German. Yeah. Yep. All those Georges. He's born on... They came from somewhere. Aye, aye. Hanover. And so our fella, Nicholas Van Astrucht, he changed his name, well, he changed his cricketing name, so he had a soubriquet. He was called Van Astrucht. But when he played cricket, he went by the name of Nicholas Felix. And the reason he did this was because he took over a school when he was 19 years old. His parents died tragically young in their 40s, one after the other, and bequeathed him this school. And at the time, in like 1823 or so, cricket was was looked at rather dimly, like it was a sort of louche pursuit. And so he like thought... <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, yeah. yeah. We're trying to get away from that over here, yeah, of course. But, you know, people, would, people will still send their kids to very expensive public schools if they think they've got a good cricket section. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in 1823, cricket suggested that you, this wasn't, you know, really the right sort, of, right sort of environment to be sending your children into because it was altogether, you know, it was gambling and it was oh, I naughtiness see okay. and I've, that um, kind of thing. I misinterpreted what you meant at the start. Okay, yeah, right, right, right. So, okay. so he's... So he's given himself, because he, he was pretty good at cricket. He was very self-effacing. He didn't think he was as good as, as he actually was, but he was good enough. And he was being selected for things like the, the great Kent team that had, as I mentioned, Lumpy Stevens and whatnot. We'll come to that in a moment or, or towards the back end. So he's taken over this school and he's gone by the name of Nicholas Felix and he's playing his, playing his cricket. And then he's going back to his school every time as a vanastruct. <laughs> so he's leading a double life. And there's a little bit of stuff on this, just to give you some context. In late 1860, and this is for you to ponder on as well, Rumbles, 
There was apparently a squabble in the English clergy provoked by the Bishop of Rochester's condemnation of some of the unbecoming habits that some clergymen had unfortunately taken up. He took particular umbrage at those guilty of two great developments of beard and whisker. Hey and added the desire to blot out the names of cricket clubs as fit for the occupation of clergymen who desire to influence those with whom they mixed. So it was deemed like it's a bad thing. Even up to 1860, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be playing cricket or having anything to do with it. So this is where our man Vanastract comes in. That's the, that's the kind of the, the subtext. So he's now playing with people like Fuller Pilch, because he's that good, and he's playing with Alfred Min. But he's not just... A cricketer. He's not just a teacher. He's also a highly accomplished musician. He's an incredible artist who makes these marvellous portraits in the sort of photorealistic style. Again, a bit like Rumble Pants does, you know, his incredibly realistic, fabulous portraits that he does. Take a look at them if you're uh, if you're unaware of his work. I think Jeff and I feature in one of those with the. um, So do you possibly? It's the it's the uh, the collage of. Cricket oh people. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was going right. to say cricket identities. I don't yeah. think it's Jeff and me is that, but you know we're in the podcast row actually with with uh, with Felix and Co. Who you mentioned before. Oh, cool. Right. So there you go. So the, I mean, the, the links with Rumbles are quite amazing. Yeah. And Might be why I picked the number. And yeah, could well be actually. Anyway, our man became a bit despondent because cameras were invented. <laughs> And he thought that that was going to be the end of his business, <laughs> making portraits for people, because his style was essentially to recreate what someone looked like. And now the bloody camera comes along. Alfred Min, you mentioned him and his yeah. pads. Well, our man, Nicholas, invented pads, special pads that would be very, very popular now, especially amongst lady wicketkeepers, because they involve creating tubes in your trousers and sticking India rubber down in these pre-stitched cavities if you like so imagine the trouser leg here and inside the trouser leg there's a series of of empty pipes and you put your you put your india rubber into that right he didn't stop inventing there my friend he invented the world's first bowling machine the, and he called it the catapulta yeah. And the catapulta was, from what I can... Do you want to sit in the tin? I'm tipping. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's. I always find it very difficult because I'm not awfully good at working these things out. When people describe how things work, for example, I, I don't really get it. So here we go. The user placed a ball at the top of the machine and an arm would swing up and thump it downfield, making contact much like a cue on a snooker ball. Intriguing. It could be set to deliver the ball, quote, so fast that it would split your bat in two, or so slow it would scarcely reach the wicket. So he had actual speed settings on this bloody thing. And we're talking the 1840s here. Anyway, he got so good at his defensive game because of the catapulta. So he presumably had, you know, one of his pupils just sort of secretly going into some field and saying, right, boy, feed this bugger for me. (laughs) He was known as a dashing bat when he first started, but his defensive game was poor. He got so good at at his defensive game because of the catapulta that he ended up playing a single wicket match against the great Alfred Min, apparently at Lord's, in front of the most brilliant assemblage of spectators ever gathered. Min scored five runs in his one innings. Felix was dismissed without scoring in his first, but in his second, he settled in for the long haul. 
facing 247 deliveries. How many runs do you reckon he got? Yeah, based on what you said before, maybe not an awful lot. Mate, let's go with, let's be generous, 40. Three. Three. <laughs> Three. Three. And 247 balls. But we, we just had on the program in the feed a couple of days ago our, our um, greatest season that was interview with Jeff Allett, who has the longest duck in Test cricket. Of course. The yeah. 100 and bo- 101 delivery duck from. I guess it was 1999 against South Africa, but... Uh, it's a good game, isn't three, it? Three from, what's it, 200? 247 balls. It was described by Sporting Life as one of the most brilliant specimens of batting ever remembered. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's so the opposite of basketball. It's unreal, isn't it? And can yeah. you imagine? You, you filled Lords, and they've seen eight runs. They've seen five from Min. They've seen three... <laughs> Tremendous. ...from our man, Nicholas Felix. What a sport. Probably all day. That probably took all day yeah. to score eight runs. I mean, I know the I know the pitches were tricky, but, I mean, come on. You, you might have just tried to tap and run. I can't yeah. believe the fielding was that good. Anyway, I, I'm going to wrap him up pretty quickly now because he, he, his career ended in 1853. Four years after, uh, sorry, four years later, he suffered a stroke that severely limited his movement for the last 19 years of his life. Fortunately for me, he wrote, I always possess something of the nature of that soubriquet, Felix, the lucky, he wrote of his pseudonym. Buoyant in spirit, full of careless hope for the best, I never would allow any calamity to weigh me down. Many a strong-minded man would have shriveled into nothing if he had had to bear but half the anxieties which I could here unfold, but to which it would be tedious now to refer. Like an Indian rubber ball, I was no sooner down than the bounding spirit of hoping for the best buoyed me up again. He was one of 21 children, (laughs) and he's come out the other side of it as Nicholas Felix. And just to let you go, my my parting gift for you is, it's a bit of a bet noir of mine, is cricketing doggerel. And so, to give you what I mean, what I mean by this is, you remember Harold Pinter's poem, I saw Len Hutton in his prime. Yes. Another time, another, another time, time. Another time, yes. To me, utter drivel, you know. I, I, I saw, think I've heard you rant about this before. I, I saw yeah. Jeff Humpage in his time, chewing lime, <laughs> chewing lime. I mean, it's just bollocks. It's, and, and everybody I think, goes you, did, I think you did the humper on the show before. I think I might have done. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I hate I hate cricketing doggerel. Mm. It, it drives me mad. There's a very funny story about that. Harold Pinter asked, I forget who, but another literary character at the time he'd sent in the poem. And uh, it, it might even mean he's like someone like Aldous Huxley or something. And... Um, Two weeks went past, and Pinter got back in touch. He said, "What do you think of the poem I sent you?" <laughs> the bloke replied, "I haven't finished it yet." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there is a poem written about our man Nicholas Felix, and it is uh, penned by the great Bernard Darwin. Bernard Shaw would have been a would turn have, up. It would have been, but yeah, wouldn't that have been lovely? That would have mm. been perfect. Sadly, not. And with five such mighty cricketers, twas but natural to win, as Felix. Wenman, Hillier, Fuller Pilch, and Alfred Min. Terrible. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. Please stop writing these abysmal poems, but I think there are better words with which we can ennoble the great Felix, the great Nicholas Felix, who played for the MCC, played for William Clark's All England Eleven, played with his top hat on, invented pads, invented the bowling machine, was a, a master pianist, a brilliant artist, and... Um, a thoroughly doughty fellow and a dusty old bastard. Oh, and you're wondering about the number? Yes. Well, it's not 100%, but I think what's happened here is that Rumbles doesn't want to pledge 45.56 pounds to you because he scored in his life 
With 100, just the 100, and an average of 18 at a time when batting was virtually impossible, so pretty good. 4,556 runs. Perfect. So I'm pretty sure that's what Rumbles is going at. Everything else He's fits. rounding the way that the Almanac rounds, not the way that normal people round. Oh, right. Normal people round in a way that would make that 4.56, 4. 4. but yeah. Wisdon would have that as 4.55. Right. Uh, Lawrence and I have had this out before in relation to Jeff Thompson's bowling average. Oh, yeah. Mm. Anyway, another time. Another Another time. time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Rumble Pants, for being part of what we do over here and supportive as ever. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. Before we jump into segment two and some more numbers, a word for our friends and supporters at Seabus Super, their 40th birthday. We've really enjoyed the last couple of weeks telling the story of Seabus's history. So the 1st of July, 1984, saw the start of something significant, a change in the way that things were done in Australia. What started off small has proven to be an important shift and it started when the average building industry worker got the opportunity to create a dignified retirement for themselves and their loved ones. This is when trade union members in the 1980s saw inequality in the retirement system and were determined to change it. Uh, the Building Union Superannuation Scheme was established in 1984 to settle this industrial dispute we've been talking about. So they came together with the ACTU and negotiated a process where an equal number of employer and employee representatives would be on as trustees. That's the consensus-based system, which is at the heart of industry super funds around the country, but started with CBUS as it would then be known or later be known as part of the industry super fund world. In those early days, visionaries like Tom McDonald, Gary Weaven, Mavis Robertson worked tirelessly with others to create something better for building workers. And these days, well, you can see the returns, trillions of dollars, which are invested in Australia across markets, across the globe to help provide Australians with greater wealth and they will have um, a dignified retirement income as a consequence of that. Building on the Heritage as one of Australia's top specialist funds, providing superannuation and income streams for members. The fund, CBUS, is tailored to member circumstances and needs across 40 years 
with the support of sponsoring organisations such as the CFMEU, the ETU and the Masters Builders Association. CBUS has evolved into a large nation-building fund that invests to create superior investment returns for its members through investments such as CBUS property. Uh, get your super sorted out in 2024, the anniversary year for CBUS. CBUSsuper.com.au or get in touch with Jeff or myself and we can put you in touch directly. Thank you to CBUS for being partners of The Final Word throughout the course of our life as a podcast, really. It's great to have the consistency of purpose talking about their great mission. Uh, their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Cbusuper.com.au. Next is me, James Withers, 646 GBP, another, uh, another pledger who's been with us before. The clue is probably a giveaway, but clue for the number. Moved from small town Victoria to small town Herefordshire in the late 1990s and being cricket mad, gravitated towards Gloucestershire because that's out towards Wales, isn't it, Herefordshire? Yeah. Sort of, um, yeah. Uh, is right? Middle middle Wales, roughly, not north, not quite south, but somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So Gloucestershire would yeah, be Yeah, so up. north yeah, of so north of Bristol. Yeah. Yeah. So south, south of just that. south of Shropshire. That'll yeah. do. So that makes sense as to why it's a Gloucestershire player. And James, this answer is like a little bit a little bit of sweet to Victorian uh, cricket fans of a certain age, in other words, my age, precise age really. Anyone who saw Ian Harvey early on and just thought he was going to go all the way as a test all-rounder. Never played test cricket. I have no doubt this is who we're talking about, Ian Harvey. Gloucestershire legend from rural Victoria. Womthaggy is where he was born. When I came over here in 2005 for the first time for cricket reasons, I spent a weekend staying in, in Gloucestershire in Sirencester to be precise and had a an ever-so-eventful weekend playing cricket for Siren. Um, I've just come back from Siren. What a beautiful place. It's a lovely Been place. Been there quite a few times over the years. And yes, on this so. weekend, I played on the Thursday, Friday, Saturday. One of those games, the Thursday, I happened to do a podcast about last year when there was a there's a touring team. Uh, I wish I remember what they're called now. Possibly called Plowmans. Does that make sense? I think they're based in Surrey. Anyway, I played a game against them and they dug my name out of a scorecard and I ended up doing a podcast. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Lovely. And... Um, was it a good score? Good scorecard? Uh, it was a, an interesting day of cricket um, mm-hmm. across the board. I didn't bowl badly. I think it did, did okay, but it doesn't matter. But the bloke I was staying with, the family I was staying with, the Hudsons, I think we've had Rich Hudson. In fact, I'm certain we've had Rich Hudson on the podcast before. He's the these days the director of Buckinghamshire Cricket, and he wrote a great cricket book called Pressure Myths a few years ago, and I had him on to talk about that. His older brother, Dan, who these days is a teacher, was a um, one of the, the senior batters in the club at the time, and he, but... Part of the reason I was drawn to these two young fellas on the Victor Trumpet cricket board, which I told you about before, while we chatted on there from when we were teenagers, was they fucking loved Ian Harvey because Ian Harvey was Gloucestershire. And I remember Dan saying to me um, when we first met whether I'd ever been to Want Hagi before because he didn't know it was Want Thaggy because, of course, he'd only ever read it on a scorecard. Want, want, want Hagi, Want Thaggy. Oh, so yeah. um, so yeah. um, hello to Rich yeah. and or Dan if you're listening to this. <laughs> Love you both. So we have done the freak before Ian Harvey. We've spoken a lot about his slower ball, his one-day career, his Gloucestershire magic. Oh, Gloucestershire days. Gloucestershire magic, all those trophies they won there. But we haven't talked so much about Ian Harvey, the batter, specifically per the clue from James, the red ball batter. So his debut's in 93-94, gets 37 on debut against New South Wales, an attack that included Wayne Holdsworth, who got a mention on the weekly show this week, so consecutive podcaster of name-checked Wayne Holdsworth, who saw that coming. I'm not familiar with Wayne Holdsworth. Uh, Got picked for the 93 Ashes as the... Well, I think he was kind of the fastest bowler in the land, a bit of a tearaway, uh-huh. and was a tourist without playing a test match and faded away shortly thereafter. But there was a time, you know, early 90s when Wayne Holdsworth was a, a bit oh, of a thing, okay. thus getting on that trip. His first half century, Harvey this is, was later in that 93-94 season. Then he drops off with the bat a little bit until January 1996. 
The next home game is his breakthrough. February 96 was the day when he made his first first class 100. And of course, I was there at the MCG. South Australia made 309. Victoria made 519 for seven declared. And I can show it to you. I've got documentary evidence that I was there. Oh my God, you do. I have my childhood school diary from 1996. (laughs) Now, the reason I looked at this and have this photographed was that about 10 years ago, my uncle and auntie, who had a lot of my stuff in storage, were about to throw a bunch of it away. And I just started thumbing through this with some fascination and saw this page and thought, I've got to take a photo of this. So I knew I had it somewhere. It reads... February 15, 1996, played cricket, went to the MCG and did fielding drills. Now, I know why that was. I was in the DDCA Mitchell Shields team that year, which was the rep team in my local area in Dandenong. And this was the day when we were being led onto the MCG to experience what it was. And we did like fielding drills during a dinner break. It was a day-night shield game. I remember that. So we went after school. Really? <laughs> day-night shield day, game? There very few. Sh- uh, there's a handful of them in 94, 95 and 95, 96. How bored are they? Uh, the first year they used... Orange and the second year they used yellow, I reckon, or maybe the other way around. Dean Jones made his 329 in a day night shield game the year before in 94 95. Matty Elliott made 200, his mm, first double 100. Great, Matty Elliott. Yeah. Ian Harvey made 134 from 130 balls. The Vicks won outright. To go to the cricket, I had to leave school early and go to a friend's house so we could get there by 4 p.m. It was a great night. To the point. Yeah. To the point. Skipped school. It was a great point. Watched Ian Harvey. Actually, looking back at the scorecard of this game, it was 122 balls, not 130 balls for Ian Harvey's first first class 100. Three sixes. And this isn't in the card, but I remember it. The shot he played to bring up his 100 was a straight six that thudded into the side screen. That's a big old shot, that. At the back MCG. Then, back then, that's especially. Huge. Oh, God, with yeah. That's then. So, the 15th of February, 1996. Um, so, there you go. A chance to dig out that old um, old photo oh, I had. Lovely. Did you, uh, did you write a diary every day? I think I did in school. I mean, basic basic drivel like that. I mean, nothing yeah, yeah. revelatory. But, yeah, I, was a di- I guess I was a diary keeper as a 12-year-old boy. It might have been a school thing. I can't remember. He had to wait 18 months for his next century. That was against New South Wales. And he's fairly consistent from that point on. But his next 100 was for Gloucestershire in September 1999. He was eventually caught by Rob Key, who's the boss of English cricket these days. 95 first-class innings to this point for three centuries. So you got a sense that he never really kicked on as a batter and was far more known for his bowling. But his career did turn a corner of sorts at that stage. He averaged um, nearly 50 in the home summer in 99-2000 for Victoria. He was a one-day international cricketer by this stage as well for the Aussies. Goes on a pretty nice run where he's averaging sort of 30s and 40s most seasons, remembering he's playing home and away for Gloucestershire every Australian winter, more than the sort of 20s and 30s that he was averaging before the turn of the century. Then uh, gets a good sort of 400 to 500 runs most seasons. I wouldn't say he's maximising his potential and he's known as a fairly kind of reckless type. He's got a reputation in Harvey as as someone who enjoyed the game on the field, enjoyed the game off the field. I remember a story that I got told once where he rocked up me to the nets. He'd had a few beers. Someone bowled a short ball at him and he chased after them with a bat. <laughs> Did it happen? Who's to know? But he played yeah. for Danny Nong. This was my local club. So, you know, you hear about, hear about these things around the traps. He never hit more than 200s in one season, which was um, which jumped out at me. So, but he kind of lower middle order, though, didn't he? Yeah, so sixish. Well, he was probably he was probably at his best a first class six, but I think he kind of hovered, probably about mm-hmm. higher in England and lower in lower in Australia yeah, would be my, yeah. my sense. But then he goes on this great flurry at the end, 2005, 2006, and 2007. In 05, this is after he's finished playing for Victoria. He's still playing in England, playing for Yorkshire in 05. He got went there for a couple of years at the start of the um, start of the century. Well, I think he went there. 
in 04 and 05 Splitter. was his best season. Made 772 runs at 42, including an unbeaten 290s career highest score. That was against Somerset. 234 balls. And yeah, unbeaten against Caddick and Co. at Leeds. Then back to Gloucestershire in 2006 and 2007 where he finished his career. In 06, made back-to-back centuries against Northampton and Essex. Then he did so in his final two games of his first-class career which is pretty rare, I reckon. I know Chris Rogers made yeah. two centuries in his last two hits for Somerset in 2016, his 75th and 76th first-class hundreds. Well, Harvey hit his 17th, uh, sorry, make that his 14th and his 15th. He finishes with 15 first-class hundreds in his last two innings. And what makes it all the more interesting is that he only plays two games in that season. So I don't know what the context was, but Gloucestershire might have had him as a white ball player by then, possibly maybe playing in the blast. Came back and played two games to finish, one against Derbyshire, one against Somerset, 136 and 153 in his last two games, making 289 runs. So that helped his first-class average swell to our number, 34.6, is what, which is what we're looking for which here is, for James. Which is pretty decent. Yeah, absolutely. 8,409 runs, averaged 37 for Gloucestershire and 33 for Victoria. So kind of reinforcing that assumption before that he had a few more opportunities when playing over in the West Country. Uh, a couple of hundreds for Gloucestershire in one-day cricket as well, and made 30 scores over 50 in first class cricket a list day bowling average of 22 if you don't mind he would have been an ever present in the England team in the 90s and the early oohs <laughs> wouldn't he you, not you wrong. can just see it he did pretty well for Australia as well as part of that World Cup winning squad in 2003 and also made three T20-100s including I've got a feeling he might have made the first one 2003 the first edition of what was then called what the, the T20 knockout or something like mm. that this is pre-blast nomenclature I th- Again, it's just, uh, we're not talking about T20 cricket, so I didn't look this up, but my, my, my memory somewhere deep in here where I would have been talking to the Hudson brothers about Gloucestershire and their travails is that Harvey made 100, at least in that first season, but I think possibly on the first day, which makes uh, yeah 20 centuries all in all in professional ranks. Ian Harvey, the freak for James Withers, 346, first-class batting average of 34.6. There you go. Well, I think you've, you've nailed that. And a, and a childhood diary entry to prove I was there. This is perfect. I, I would say, you know, two for two so far. So far, so good. Things are going quite nicely. And you're next they? up. Matt McD, 385 AUD. <laughs> uh, and the clue is it's the sum of three related numbers. Good luck with that as a starting point. That was yeah. when I saw it. I'm like, this might take some doing. Well, do you know, and it really did take some doing. <laughs> and, I, and I'm delighted to say that um, he was very kind, was Matt McD, because I was tearing my hair out. Now, in terms of related numbers, so I was, I'm, I'm looking for clues the whole time, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, what could what could the what could the re- the relatives <laughs> relative numbers mean? Right? I'm looking over your shoulder at your yeah. phone and yeah. I see Andy Zaltzman. Yeah. You've immediately gone to yeah, because I've gone. What the, what the hell is going on here? What the hell? I mean, can, can you help me out? How can I make 385 come as uh, related numbers? So. I went back to him and said, he said, I, that's just a ridiculous clue. I said, well, it does feel like a ridiculous clue, but what if it's about relatives? So uh, I yeah. went down the most Related extraordinary numbers. rabbit hole. Do it. I went down Greg Chapel, Ian Chapel, and Vic Richardson. Well, if you add all of them together, oh, you get tantalisingly close. You get 371 oh. if you include ODIs. Yeah, so yeah. 161, 91, and 19 added together. What oh. about Trevor? Uh, oh, three unrelated. But then, as if I put when I put Trevor in, 
instead of Vic Richardson, we ended up going the other way and had too many. Blew it out. Because Vic Richardson only had the 19. Right, yep. I thought, hang on a minute, this could be... Stop, stop being so male-centric, Norcross. So I asked him, I said, get me Healy, Healy and Stark. Mm. 396 ODI oh. caps between them. Oh, can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, you're going, oh, I think I've nailed it. This is going to be great. Healy, Healy, Stark. Wouldn't yeah. that have been gorgeous? There's a number for someone. You could have gone, you could have gone Alderman, Alderman Emerson. You could have gone Terry Alderman. His sister, whose name I think is Denise Alderman, I'm sorry if I've got that wrong, who married Ross Emerson, the umpire who famously called Maruli for chucking and uh, and, and um, we, we've talked about Ross Emerson and some other stuff you might have said across the journey on the pod before, whether the umpires overseen by Emerson adding to Alderman's test and one day is an Alderman, the sisters. Anyway, yeah, you, you haven't done that, but that's another no, I haven't done that. that, was, yeah, that was, but Terry that was, Alderman wouldn't have played anywhere near enough games to have helped with this. I thought, how about catches? How about ODI catches? Ian Healy, 194. Alyssa Healy, 71. Stark, 44. That adds up to 380. Oh, I mean, it's, it's just not fair. Give it, give it, give it about three games, and that would actually have worked. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> and we don't know where Matt put it in, so you could have claimed, you could have found ignorance. Yes, on that. exactly, exactly. So yeah, that, that was that was that was one. Anyway, as you know, I was somewhat exasperated by this because I, I was on the verge of going. Okay, I'm going to give you Lara's three seventy-five, Jim Laker's ten wickets, and Radman's duck. <laughs> that adds up to three eighty-five. How'd you like them apples, Matt McDee? <laughs> But Matt McDee was very gracious and yes. I'm very grateful to him for it because um, you went to him and said, can we just get something a little bit more? Just a bit of a steer. Just I a often bit just need to get to the, to the start line. Once we're at the start line, yeah. we're then fine. We, then we can have a go. Yep. And he gave me, gave us a rather lovely clue, actually. He said that he, was, he lives within sight of the Wacker's light towers. The sort of brutal Soviet-style... Yeah. I love the Wacker. I mean, it is a ground that is literally held together by duct tape. It's it's crazy. You know, they've sadly knocked down, I say sadly, it was required to do the development there. The printable stands no longer. No. So that's going to be, I think, like a pool or something like that. So they, the capacity of the Wacker will, when it's finished its redevelopment, will be at around 10,000 from the 22 or 23,000 held before. So it'll feel a lot different the next time you're in Perth. All oh, right. Which well, is sad because I think the original idea was that lower attending a lo- lower rated test matches well to be fair with Perth most of them don't get many people there could could be held at the Wacker right and, and you could save you know India and England for the casino stadium but yeah that, oh, I that's, see so it's play Afghanistan there maybe yeah, yeah I think, they they I think there was some talk of them playing anyway it's a moot point it's never going to happen uh, well I love the Wacker I, I did the last test match there the you 2017 did. Yes. AC Nashes I remember you found um, you and Warney found um, found the smoking spot a place to smoke on the and still watch the game at the same time we did it was lovely it's, it's, it, that's the the greatest gift that the great man has ever given me was, <laughs> was where to smoke at the Wacker. So, with that, armed with that clue, he, he said, it uh, refers to my favourite cricketer and I'm looking forward to seeing that cricketer shortly. And I thought, Wacker? Well, the men don't play very much at the Wacker, but there's a test match There sure is this soon. week, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll have started by the time In fact, by the out. time this podcast is published, that test will have been and gone. And this player may already have made her mark because South Africa's women and Australia's women are playing in a test match against each other at the Wacker, as we say. At the WACA ground. At the WACA ground. And I'm thinking, okay, now I can narrow this down. Now, just because 
he lives in Perth doesn't mean that he's not a South African fan. In fact, there are so many South Africans in Perth, True. there's a very strong chance that it was a South African I was looking for. But I thought I'll start with Aussies. And he said, my favourite cricketer. I was disappointed to discover that it wasn't Grace Harris because anybody who loves cricket should know that Grace Harris is everyone's favourite cricketer, bar none. Friend she of the is, pod, been on the show. She is a wonderful woman. Yep. The greatest. But, you know, I'll let it go. So I thought, Talia McGrath. How about Talia McGrath? Well, when I looked into Talia McGrath, you will not believe it, but her ODI cap, her T20 cap, and her test cap numbers all added together came tantalisingly close to the number 385. That sent me <laughs> down what wasn't a rabbit hole. It was my path to salvation, my friends. <laughs> so I, was, I then looked around. So, so I'm, I need people who have debuted in and around that in yeah. order to make, because it's got to be this era. It's got to be this recent era. It's not Elise Perry. It won't be Elise Healy. It won't be that lot. It's going to be most recent. And blow me down with a feather if... A certain player, her women's ODI cap number is 147. Her women's T20 cap number is 57. Her test number is 181. You add them all together, you get 385. I knew I'd got it. I knew I'd got it. And I was completely over the moon, especially because those three debuts all occurred within two weeks of each other, 14 days she made her debut in all three formats back in 2022. Three cap presentations, the same speech or a version of it three times. Absolutely, over and over again. Her, uh, her test debut was on the 27th of January, 2022. Her ODI debut was on the 3rd of February, 2022. And her T20 debut was on the 20th of January. So yeah, that was that's 14 days, two weeks between them. There'll be some history there, right? So I doubt anyone has made their debut in all three formats. Can't know, have done it as right? quickly as that. Surely. So she'll be at one end of the spectrum and the other we dealt with, I think this will be true, at the other end was Martin Bicknell who we, um, ref- oh no, that uh, won't be true either. No, my apologies because he played Test in 1993, didn't he? But he, he yeah. had that gap between 1990 when he played one day as in 2003 but if not for the pesky 1993. That, but I wonder mm. what the gap is for the longest wait between, I guess, your first cap of the three formats now is yeah. three. And before T20s, between tests and, and one-dayers, who had to wait a really, really long time. Adam Vo just had to wait a really long time between his one-day debut in about 2006, seven and his test debut in 2015. But they'll be longer than that. And I wonder... They'll be longer than that. Because now you've got me thinking, I wonder what the longest is going. Because the ODI to test will probably be longer because traditionally people have been tried out in one-day internationals and then given a test match when, when they yeah. proved themselves. Yeah, that used to be the old way of yeah. doing it. But I wonder what the longest gap is between getting your test cap first and then getting your first ODI cap. Great. That's great. That would but be an also, interesting yeah, one. But even in the T20 era. Yeah. You know, when you yeah. blend in the three, who's had the, who's had the two but not the third? Yeah. This is all good stuff. You know who will yeah. work this out? This will be on our Discord channel. If you join the final word on Patreon, you get access to the Discord channel. And I am certain that many people will tear into the numbers on this and work it out. That'll be part of the fun. After the show, well, I still haven't told you who it is. Uh, oh, I, yeah. mean, I think I think you know. I think you know by now. <laughs> I do. It is a lady born in November 1995, so she was quite a late developer for women's yep. cricket. 26 when she makes those international debuts, albeit one straight after the other. Kept out of the side by, well, just the enormous quantity of exceptional talent there is in Australia. Some great leggies out there, Georgia Wareham, 
Amanda Jade Wellington, whom she controversially... She leapfrogged her. Leapfrogged mm. her, this lady. And she's also rare in as far as... And I don't mean this in a snarky way at all, but it, it is kind of noticeable that people of colour or people of, who have emigrated or whose families have emigrated into Australia are not quite as well represented as they have been in English cricket history over the years. You know, England starting with Ranjit Sinji, and obviously they've had periods when the entire emigration has been from South Africa and they've been white South Africans. But, you know, you think back to the 90s and 80s and 90s and Gladstone Small, Philip de Freitas, Devon Malcolm, you know, Chris Lewis. There's quite a lot of that. Australia, not not quite as much, really. It was Mankwaja uh, nowadays, and, and, you know, pitifully few people from Indigenous origin. But this lady, Alana King, her parents emigrated from Chennai to Melbourne. You're going to have to tell me a little bit about where she's from, Clorinda. I, I'm not familiar with Clorinda. I think Clorinda is near Clayton. In fact, I'm certain it is. So that's in the outer southeast, not outer southeast, south, southeast suburbs, and it is uh, probably 20 kilometres from town, not far away from Monash University. Right. In that southeasterly direction. I used to spend plenty of time in Springvale, but not quite in Clorinda. I worked in Springvale when I was at university and went to uni at Monash. The local MP I worked for was um, based on Springvale Road. So, yeah, but uh, I don't know a huge amount about it demographically, but it would be an area where a lot of people have migrated, I suspect, so this would all line up, yeah. She made her first, well, she got her first rookie contract in 2012 at the tender age of just 16. So she had quite a long time from that, you know, 10 years to establish herself in the Australian team, which is, again, a function of the the depth, you'd have to say, in quality. But since then, she's entirely justified her position. I mean, there's there's a YouTube clip doing the rounds from this week. Uh, one of the most delicious. Yeah. Well, she didn't even get a wicket with it. No. Drifted drifted just outside leg stump, spat, turned sharply and just missed off stump. I think Dan Libke tweeted quite uh, sagely, call that a good ball. Missed the edge and missed the stumps. <laughs> missed everything. <laughs> but yeah, she, she, yeah. I mean, that's the one thing she's probably brought into her game for Australia. She was more of the, in, in a men's cricket comparison, of the Zampa mould, kept the stumps in play, which made her so threatening with, uh, I guess, both edges exposed. But now, yeah, I guess um, flexing her muscles a bit more with those hard spun leg, break, leg breaks that, um, that often go viral, as you're saying, when, when they are gotten right. Well, we do love them, don't we? we yeah. They do look delicious. They do. She became the first woman to uh, take a hat-trick in the 100. It's the dreaded 100. <laughs> but, you know, it's still a thing. It's still a thing, whatever your views. And, and I know it's another 100 stat, but... And I, this had passed me by, you know. I can't believe I missed this. In the 2022 edition, playing for um, Trent Rockets against my side, the Oval Invincibles, she achieved a unique feat, and it's it's unique in cricket because only the 100 is mad enough to let you do this, namely to let you bowl 10 consecutive balls because in proper cricket, you can't unless you're bowling no balls. She bowled 10 consecutive dot balls, became the first, and I think to this day, only person wow. to have achieved that feat. Um, it is the great Alana King, and... Um, we wish her extremely well. She's 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 going to go from strength to strength. She's a beautiful, beautiful bowler, and she wears glasses really well. I think. I think she she handles sunnies more stylishly than any other woman cricketer out there at the moment. So I can kind of see why Matt McDee has her as his favourite. I suspect Matt McDee is a bit of a romantic and likes leg spin generally. I'd be interested to know where he stands on Georgia Wareham. Well, it's, I, it's against the law to bowl off spin or finger spin. 
without wearing sunglasses. Yeah. Which I'm going to have to turn to. Now that I've become mm. a finger spinner later in life, I'm going like to invest in well, all of them, really. Yeah. Any off spinner with, with anything at all wears shades. And I'm not normally one for wearing sunglasses because, as Rach often points out, I lose them quite quickly. Yeah. Um, so I might have to pick up some, you know, speed dealers from the, from the servo. When bowling this year, we'll but see. There you go. You, you, we had it, and I'll tell you what. When I got that number, you see, whatever we say about these clues, Matt McD, when I got it, I was about as happy as I've ever been. Uh, I literally <laughs> ran in a circle, like a kind of like a dog who's just been given speed in a sugar, in a sugar lump. <laughs> Round and round and round, wagging my non-existent tail, going, yes, 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 with 23 hours to go because the numbers added up. There's a, there's a sort of beauty to that. So thank you for that. It's ODIs, it's T20s, it's test caps. You add them all to the other, well, not caps, it's their cap number, the, 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 the sequential number that they get given, not the number they put on their back. Uh, you add them all together, you get 385. That is a Lana King. There is the episode title, Like a Dog Who Takes Speed in a Sugar Lump. <laughs> Matt McD, next up's for me, Mark Stein, 399 AED. Another edit, another pleasure who's come back and re up which we're ever so grateful for. We love, love our friends that have been with us before, sent a subsequent pledge in. It helps the story time well circulate the way that it does uh, 50 odd times a year. Uh, there's no clue on this one. Free hit. So I'm going to do what I haven't done in a while. I'm going to go for a wander. Um, often I like to just pick one thing and zero in, but occasionally Jeff does this more than I. I'll do a few things and none of them will be right and that's okay. We'll deal with it at a later date. It's not a bad number for it as well. 399, it's a number that kind of stands out. 399, which is of course the, um, the target that England was set in the last ah, test match. Ah, very good. It was yeah. indeed. Well, there you go. Valuating there straight away. Oh, by the way, normally, Jeff and I will say normally it's become something of like, we have, whatever the story time number is, so 170, we've given a fact about that. I forgot to do that. Have a think. Think about something 170 related while, while I start this answer. I was curious as to whether anyone had been dismissed for 399 before as a player. That's not happened. I, I, on really reflection, all? Is that, well, on reflection I probably would have known that. Like, you know, if someone, yeah, we know the yeah. 399s, yeah. don't we? Right? Yeah, so true. we would definitely know the 399s. But there have been two players to dismissed in the nervous 390s. So I thought I'd go through both of those. Oh, yeah. Um, in 2000, in the Katie Azam Trophy for Sagoda versus, uh, let's have a crack at this, Gujranwala, Navid Latif batted for 780 minutes Ooh. and 595 balls for his 394. That sits just outside the top 10 for That's longest first-class innings. Yeah, yeah. And it still doesn't get him in the top 10. Wow. More on this later. Mohammed must have a few of them, I'm guessing. More on this later. More on this later. He was actually opening the batting with Muhammad Hafiz, which when you consider this was in 2000, well, he's probably old then still. Uh, Hafiz made 57 of their 100. 24 years ago. What a grief. Yeah, he did play for a long time, the the professor. Got a test match out the back of it, Navid Latif. uh, 11 one days as well, but never really cracked the code when playing for Pakistan. Interesting to me, though, you know how I went through Ian Harvey's first-class numbers earlier? Mm. Ian Harvey, 15 first-class hundreds, 8,400 runs, an average of 34. Well, Navid, 15 first-class hundreds, 8,300 runs, first-class average of 34. You couldn't make it up. My goodness. You couldn't make it up. Did he have a slower ball? Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, I heard on commentary the other day someone was um, uh, talking of Simon O'Donnell being the creator of the back of the hand slap. That's that's fair. That's reasonable. But you can't do the Simon O'Donnell bit without 
following it up with the Ian Harvey bit, as surprisingly Kevin Peterson did on commentary um, from India a couple of weeks well, ago. It's a very good ball, a very, very good ball. A very, a very, 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 very good, good ball, ball actually. <laughs> Do you think someone's going to tell me about that at some point? I don't know. I mean... I think probably not. I think you reach a level when you are such a good cricketer, which Peterson clearly was, that when you transition into the commentary box, you don't get told stuff like that. I, I fear that might be the case. But that said, it, it's, it's fun for us all because we've just become ever more ridiculous in our pastiches of, um, of, of KP. So we, we have fun. We have fun. And, he, and he's having fun. Everyone's having fun. Yep. He's getting paid ridiculously yeah. well for it as well I'm sure so good luck to him not dwell too much on that um, <laughs> and, and also by the way Navid uh, Latif also ended up in the Indian Cricket League like Ian Harvey did at the very end so they both ended their career um, oh, with those suspensions unusual competition yeah. so they reunited on story time today so he's closest to 400 without getting there the other 390 was also at the, in the same decade the end of the decade 2009 Stephen Cook now we saw Stephen Cook in Australia yeah. in 1617 when he was a test opener did pretty well three centuries and 11 test matches and was dispensed with but uh, yeah first class average of 40 had a long first class career the son of the great Jimmy Cook who was one of mm. the least lucky players and by that I mean his whole professional career was during the um, right. uh, the apartheid ban so did he get did he he did at the very did, end he, he, he got a great game just at the couple of tests in a one yeah. day I think it was yeah. kind of like Clive Rice at the very end yeah. got a chance to play for South Africa but he made his first class debut in 1972 Jimmy Cook and was the Bad timing. the greatest batter of, or near enough the greatest batter of his era and generation certainly at first class level 64 first class hundreds uh, Jimmy Cook made an average of 51 but his son Stephen made 390 for the Lions against the Warriors 54 falls and 1-6 he was facing Mackay and Teeny in the opposing attack who took none for 38 from 31 overs ooh that's parsimonious yeah, well, must have been going a bit. Yeah. And, but also the fact that he didn't take a wicket across yeah. that stretch of time when Teeny was still broadly speaking at his best in, in the late 2000s I mentioned Latif with the longest innings and that was 700 and something minutes 780 13 how, hours how about Cook 838 minutes. Hello. That makes it the sixth longest first-class innings ever. But more runs than anyone in the top five. All the scores, the, all, all the innings that were longer yeah, made fewer than 300. So none of them were, were, quadruple, were quadruple tons, in other words. Now, the longest, you said Hanif Muhammad. I well, it's the first that one too. that came into my head. I mean, the 337, yeah. yeah. And the 999 minutes, right? Yeah. Which is, I, I've now learnt, maybe not quite true. So on the list that's kept by Crick Info, the number of minutes given to Hanif Muhammad is something like 960-something. But there's a little asterisk next to it down the bottom. It says, Hanif Muhammad has always claimed that it was 999 minutes. You've got to be pretty fucking good for Crick Info to give you an asterisk on yeah. what you say. And what is it about... On what you say. But, 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 but what is it about Hanif that he wants constantly to be very, very close to a mile. 499, of course. Run out on 499. Yeah, yeah. And then he goes, no, 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 sir. I was there for 999 minutes. You'd you'd probably let it pass, wouldn't you? Because that extra <laughs> minute would be so frustrating. You could have tied your shoelaces like three times in the course of, of that whole thing. It would like extended it. And it's not the longest innings either. So we're, both of us okay. assumed that was to be. There is a longer one. Rajiv Nayar took... 1,015 minutes to make his 271 for Himachal Pradesh when captaining a game. Now, this is a story worth telling at some point. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it today, but I, I had a quick squiz at that. that. That is quite interesting and quite noteworthy of itself. For an actual 399, though, 
now I've kind of wandered around with things that aren't. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk a little bit about Bob Barker, who was the 399th English Test player. And we haven't spoken about him on the podcast before, and I wish to. And I think you'll be able to value out a little bit here as we work our way through, Dan. I know he played before you were born, but doesn't mean mm-hmm. you won't know a little bit about him. A left-handed batter. Uh, he was known as an attacking player, which is why he got his opportunities playing for England. He was an amateur originally uh, for Lancashire, and after the pro-amateur divide got squashed or quashed, uh, he moved to Warwickshire where he just became a, you know, like a player as they all were when there was no longer a distinction made between the, the gentlemen and the players in the early 60s. That's the decade where he's playing his test cricket, uh, all of it, most of it, makes his debut against South Africa in 1960 and makes it all the way through until the 1968 Ashes. So he plays a bit with Geoffrey Boycott. I he remember Geoffrey talking about Bob Barber because he it, was a very unlike Jeff Boycott kind of player. He's yep. a bit of a dasher, wasn't he? he? He sure was. And Boycott's going to come up in a sec. His most famous innings. So 28 test matches, an average of 36 in just one century. Right? He's an oh. all-rounder. He is an all-rounder, but he opens the batting for England mostly. Takes 42 wickets with his leg breaks. It's a hell of a hundred though, isn't it? It is. You're, you're on, you, you, you know where I'm going with this. Mm. So the... Uh, just looking at his first-class numbers for what it's worth, he averaged about 30 with the bat and about 30 with the ball. So the definition of an all-rounder in, in county cricket parlance, but did better than that with the bat in test cricket. And t- you know, roughly a, a wicket per innings that he bowled for England. But if you're going to make one century in test cricket, you may mm. as well make it a record-breaking one. Ask Tip Foster about that. And you can also ask Tip Foster about doing it at the SCG, which is where Bob Barber did something... Oh, Special. That's it was. 1965-66 Ashes. To recap, Australia won in 64. It's the heavy draw era. So mm. to win a test match, especially away, is quite a big deal. And but there's so many draws that you've got to kind of pinch it. And there is a draw to start the series at Brisbane at the Gabba, which is um, Doug Walters' 100 on, on Test Taboo. The second test match, a draw as well. But England are right in it. They outscored Australia in the first innings. The series feels well and truly on when they go up to Sydney in early 1966. And England start the test by making 488. So if you just press pause there, two draws, then a big first innings. Mm. You're thinking they're, you know, they're in a... You're in the ashes here. You're well and truly in the ashes when you consider that when you're sort of two and a bit test matches into an Ashes series in Australia these days. Oh, yeah, Australia yeah. You're, out, you're out of the Ashes. <laughs> Australia are 2-0 mm-hmm. up and careering towards a 3-0 yeah. series win or series uh, lead. Well, you've just been bowled out for 205 and Australia are 181 for one. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> but Bob Barber, top scores with 185. He put on 234 with Boycott to start the test match, all on the first day. That remains the highest score for England on the opening day of an Ashes test. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, the record. Record. that's the record he holds. And how's this from Swanton? Our old mate Jim Swanton uh-huh. from Calling the Shots Days. Often in bleak moments, I do cast back to Bob Barber's 185 in front of 40,000 people on that sunny Friday in January 66. He batted without chance for five hours, starting decorously. Decorously? Decorously. 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 What am I saying? I'm looking yeah. at like decorate the shape. Decorously. Decorously, yeah. Decorously enough. And then hitting the ball progressively harder with a superb disdain to every corner of the field. One recalls the exceptional vigour of his driving and how he brought his wrists into the cut, making room for the stroke. It made blissful watching to English eyes. To one pair in particular, four by a wonderful 
chance Father Barber had flown in from home that very day. Oh, so Bob's old man, we were saying, you know, we didn't actually mention on the podcast that Maxie's parents came to watch him play in Adelaide yesterday when he made his 120 not out, which is oh. part of the reason why he played. He's going to be rotated through. And he said, no, I want to play. My mum and dad are here. Um, well, Bob Barber's dad was there the day that he made 185. So they go on to win that test match. David Brown, David Allen, Fred Titmus bowl them out twice. Australia, they follow on. They win by an innings of 93 runs. They're one up in the ashes. But Australia, panic stations. Panic stations, they change the captaincy. Brian Booth steps down. Bob Simpson takes over. They move to uh, Adelaide for the next test match. Simpson makes 225, leading the side. They pull level at one all. Uh, and then to make sure of it, they go to Melbourne. Last match of the series. A draw sufficient. So Bob Cowper bats for probably nearly as long as the guys we mentioned earlier. To make his 307. Yeah. So the, the Ashes are retained on the back of a one-all scoreline. For Barber, that's largely it for him. His business interests kind of got in the way. As his obituary says, he, he made his, his money mostly from the blue tablets that you put in the system to keep the uh, uh, the toilets going right? as you'd like. That was his, He's um, responsible for those things. Yeah, that was him. That's kind of like chunky, yeah. weird, slightly smelly things. That, that, that's his thing. So that's where he mostly had his focus after Ooh. that. He's still with us at 85 years of age and the 42 wickets he took are the second most for an English wrist spinner since World War II, which is kind of cool. Um, Gosh, and so who's, who, what is it? Robins or somebody who... Uh, yeah, I, Robin, I don't Robin, know, Robin, Robin thingy? That, 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 I, that I haven't taken down, but I, you know, yeah. still it says a little bit about how wrist spin... Yeah. Hasn't been that big a deal for England compared to Australia. And our, yeah, our Wanda is complete. Look forward to going back to it in the revisits. Uh, 399, Mark Stein. Love it. That Bob Barber innings was a big one for me because I had this superb book I've t- told you about before, the David Frith book, which was the illustrated history of Ashes Test yep. that came out to mark the centenary test in 1977. And uh, that was... That 185 was so close to when I was born, and yet, amazingly, in your own head, 1965, because it was four years before I was born, felt like a wholly different era. Yeah. Because it was before me. Do you know what I mean? Um, You're right. Is, it's like if I think of the 1981 Ashes, it's 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 intangible to me. Yeah. When really it's yeah. know, three years exactly from when I was born, but it doesn't feel like it's cricket that I can identify with, but you press fast forward a decade, not even half a decade, and I feel like, oh, yeah, I kind of... And Bo- Boycott talks about that 185. I asked him about the, the greatest players he'd opened with, because, you know, that it, on debut, he famously opened with Fred Titmus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because John Edrich was bust or something, had done his arm or something like that, I forget the reasons, but Fred Titmus opened. So we were having a conversation about best openers, and he loved Colin Milburn. Uh, he's mm. typical of Boycott. He loves all the players who did the things that he didn't do. Um, <laughs> but, he, but he'd still slag him off on TV if, if, uh, if they got out to a stupid, you big yacht. But um, Bob Barber, he, he, he waxed lyrical about that 185 many times from watching it at the other end, saying it was one of the greatest innings he'd ever seen. Daniel, we've got two more numbers yep. to do. RJ, 253GBP, another re-pledger here. Thank you, RJ. This number is the total of the score made plus balls faced by one of my childhood heroes in a very big match for his country. Note that this idol of mine isn't Indian. Daniel. Well, 253, and it's the accumulation of two things. So thoughts immediately go to runs and balls. And, I mean, as any cricket fan would then do, you'd instantly think of Vusi Sabanda's 116 off 137 balls for Zimbabwe against Bermuda in the ICC Associates Tri-Series final in 2006. Of course. So I assume... That's that what I'm honoured. 
assumed that's what he was talking about. Naturally. And I prepared a, a whole a whole thing on that great game of 2006, the unforgettable associate tri-series final, which Vusi Samanda did so brilliantly in. And then I thought, oh, it's probably not that, is it? <laughs> so, um, Favourite players, Australian... It could have been any number of things. And there was a lot of number crunching went on. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. I got hold of results and I said, right, this is what I'm, I'm after combinations. And let's start with slightly more runs than balls, you know, because let's imagine it's an explosive innings. I thought, you know, it could have been 17 off 236. I, I initially wondered... Jack Russell, what was his? Could have been old Felix, three off... Uh, three off 247, yeah. exactly. You know, but I was I was sort of thinking, it could have been a backs-to-the-wall innings like Jack Russell, yeah, Russell against Chabuk, South Africa, yeah. you know. And he only got 28, didn't he? And I wondered, yeah, 200 and something balls. Exactly. Yeah. So was it 225 balls? Mm. Was it... It wasn't quite... Could have been Athers. Could have been Athers, but Although he Athers scored too many runs. He yeah. scored 185 again, he didn't did, he? Yeah. Which is, I like Bob Barber, Very another good. 185. Yep. So discounted that. And with the help of a database that allows me, therefore, to see combinations. Uh, and there are a few, as you can imagine, because in the history of cricket, you know, 253 could be 113 off 140, you know, it's not inconceivable, or 100 off 153. There was one that was glaringly obvious, it struck me, and it was Adam Gilchrist in a World Cup final. Ah, right, OK. With a squash ball in his glove. He scored 149 of 104 balls, 253. So I'm now pretty happy that I've nailed it. Now, I mean, like I say, it could be Vusi Sabanda, and if it is, come back to us. But nonetheless, we're going to tell you a little story about Adam Gilchrist. There's so much that people know about Adam Gilchrist that it's hard to know really where to start. But I think there's just some things that I'd forgotten about in a storied career so incredible. And... Because we think of Adam Gilchrist as kind of like the game changer. In the same way that you'd probably say Les Ames was the game-changing wicketkeeper in the 20s and just altered people's attitudes because you know, students of cricket will know well that wicketkeepers regularly, for the first 20, 30 years of international cricket, would bat at 10 or 11. They were not expected to bat. Um, I, I dare say being a Gloveman was pretty bloody difficult as well because the pitches would have been strange there'd have been a lot of break on the ball that balls could have gone up and down all over the bloody place so you, you wanted specialists and cricket just sort of created specialists like the Strudwicks of this world they, they couldn't bat for toffee then Les Ames came along and that changed people's attitudes and so keepers had to be a bit better and he sort of created the number seven role really I mean Ames ended up going up higher than that became the only wicket keeper uh, to get a hundred hundreds that you'd classify as only a wicket keeper, and he always did keep wicket. Very rarely did he not. So, um, you, so look at people in that kind of bracket. For England, after that, it'd be someone like Alan Knott. Alex Stewart was part of the conundrum that lots of teams would have, as, as Kumar Sangakkara was. You know, what do you do with somebody who can keep wicket really well and who bats really well? Adam Gilchrist was beautiful because he was a keeper. And he batted like an absolute god. And there was no danger of thinking, well, shall we have him instead of somebody else? When he first started, well, he never, was he he never better, yeah, the key. The key thing, I think, with Gilchrist, to bolster your point there, he never looked like he was going to be Sangakara batting in the top five. No. He always fit the criteria or the mould of a six or a seven. Exactly. And the 
discussion around wicket keepers had changed. The keeper just batted seven by the time Gilchrist rocked up. There was no conversation around it, was there? No. I mean, he was probably denied two or three years of a career by just the proficiency of Ian Healy and the fact that Healy was such a good keeper to Shane Warne and you needed to have your wits about you if you're going to be keeping to somebody who's spinning the ball so prodigiously and differently and you've got to read them. And Healy's batting was good towards yeah. the, If anything, his batting got better. Yep. Um, towards the end of his career so it wasn't like he wasn't making a contribution and like you watch back Healy's highlight reel now especially to Warren he was a he was, must be the most gifted glove Australia's produced beautiful beautiful to watch great hands but so you could argue that maybe he was he was denied a little bit of a career but when he came in uh, and it, I guess it was all this talk of how test cricket is going now I hesitate to say baseball because I, I think it's actually test cricket generally is moving along at a faster pace, whether that's been encouraged or otherwise, who knows, by the approach to the England test team, I don't know. But if a basball happened way before basball, then Adam Gilchrist's 473 runs or 474 balls against South Africa in 2002, an average of 157.16. That's pretty Basbalian. I mean, this stuff was... This stuff was going around. I mean, that and that's in test matches, and that's not one day internationals. That's a, that's in a test match series. And included the um, striking at basically a hundred. Yeah, it was the it was very briefly the quickest double hundred in test cricket till Nathan that's Astle broke Nathan it five Astle. minutes later. Yeah, and I mean, and, and, and in that game, didn't Nathan Astle beat? Was it Graham Thorpe? It was an absolute road when that happened because I think there'd been an even faster one. And then Nathan Astle, ah, right. all in the same game. It was a crazy game. I was decorating my um, my bedroom at the time <laughs> um, and, and listening to it at four o'clock in the morning. He, of course, famously got the 57-ball tarn against England in 2016 when apparently he'd misinterpreted the orders. He thought that the idea was to go hard so they'd go for a declaration and, and they'd basically said the opposite. <laughs> so, yeah, stick in, lad. <laughs> Chew up some time. And he misheard that as, oh, I'd better get a 57 ball 100. <laughs> and, and he was also considering retirement then. Um, he, he's yeah. spoken later about how he'd missed out in the first couple of test matches. And, you know, because he started the snifter later, he'd eight years into his test career, but was probably deep into his 30s, but I don't remember exactly how old he was. He might have been, say, 34, 35, the type of age when you might retire. And his international career did extend beyond that. But, you know, it's the 57-ball 100 that gave him a, a brief um, new lease of life and took him through until about 2008 Yeah, he only kept going for another couple of years. And, and his departure was described by John Buchanan as more problematic for Australia than Warren, than McGrath, than, you know the likes of Langer and Hayden to come. They they were really concerned because he balanced the side that traditionally didn't really have much in the way of all-rounders. Australia have frequently not sort of had the all-rounders like Cam Green and Mitch Marsh that they have now. So uh, Gilchrist acted as a a bona fide all-rounder, especially when you've got Shane Warne who can bowl forever at one end. So he started in 2007 World Cup because this is where we're ending up. This is the 2-5-3. Pretty well. But he's, he's a funny guy. When you look into his numbers, he has these great streaks and then he has some quite low patches. And although his overall World Cup numbers look pretty decent, he's frequently pinch hitting top of the order, getting 40s, 50s, 60s. In 2007, he started with a 46, 57 and 42. But then things dropped off and he got nothing against New Zealand. He got one against South Africa in the semi-final. So he goes into this final concerned about his batting form and this is where the squash ball comes in and the MCC were even 
like quizzed on whether it was acceptable. And they had to, they judged quite rightly that you could put whatever you like in your batting gloves. You could put steak in there if you like. You can, you can, put, a, you can put a live squirrel in your batting gloves. You want, incidentally, by the way, I forgot to tell you earlier, Nicholas Vanastract invented the batting glove using Indian rubber and he didn't patent it. So someone else did and made loads oh. of money since we're talking about batting gloves. But Adam Gilchrist, because he felt that it was his bottom hand, was it? That he was gripping the bat too hard, so he was like strangling the shot. What he needed to do was have a softer grip on the bat. And so by putting a squash ball into his batting glove, into his hand, he didn't have, he couldn't get his fingers so tightly wrapped around the bat. So he was holding it more lightly and therefore keeping the shape of the shot and not squinching it around the leg, you know, or dragging it and getting through the shot badly. And it wasn't the first time by any means that he'd scored a half-century in a World Cup final. I think it was his third consecutive World Cup final in which he got a half-century. He did... 99. In the win in 99. Uh, in, in, sorry, in 2003, opening the batting when Australia got 300 and a million for two. And Ponting got 140. And Ponting's 140 was the highest individual score in a World Cup final. There have been some great World Cup final performances. Clive, Clive Lloyd, Lloyd, Viv Richards. Uh, Ponting's was top of the pops until four years later, Adam Gilchrist with 149 destroys it. 13 fours, eight sixes, utterly spectacular innings. And um, if you add 149 and 104, you get 253. The great, the great... Adam Gilchrist. And with that, I feel confident, Colo, that I can say we're five out of five so far. I'm definitely three out of three. Yeah, I, I know I'm, I've got the Harvey one right. I doubt I've got the 399 right. But, you know, maybe well, I'll, told be the given, story. Yeah, I'll be given latitude on 399. It might be latitude. one of those where, you know, they, they like the story. Mark likes the story better than the one he intended. Who knows? Exactly. That sometimes happens. Well, RJ, at 2.53, you've been well served by Daniel Norcross. One to go. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast. All right, it's story time, 170, Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross, and we have jumped forward in time. It was... It was ambitious, Daniel, that we would record an entire story time in 75 minutes or whatever it was that we had yesterday, uh, given that we're both partial to long answers. So pressing fast forward, oh, I don't know, 17 or 18 hours, I'm now back in my office. You're still in your house and we're talking down the screen, but all is well. We only have one number to go, but it's a long answer. So I thought best that we hit pause and, and start again. How are you feeling this morning? Um, I'm not too bad, but the, the weather's changed, doesn't it? Yesterday there was a beautiful, bright, sunny, crisp winter, and now it's dreary and wet. Uh, and on the subject of timings, I think uh, Shirley Mel, a, uh, a very fine uh, and upstanding member of the Final Word team, will uh, have expected nothing less. She tweeted and said she was expecting at least a two-hour episode when she heard that <laughs> we were on. So, uh, yeah, this is for you, Mel. <laughs> yes, Mel Shawley, who's... Uh, I, I often think of her as, like, the uh, the heart and soul of the final word community in the UK. She is often responsible for the meetups and all the rest of it. So, love to you. Oh, by the way, since we last talked, uh, I've done some brief research. I said to you we needed to find something for 170. It's been the thing that Jeff and I have been doing on story times of late. I'll give you... W.G. Grace and his 170 against Australia at 1886 up the road from you at the Oval, one of his one of his two test hundreds. 
So there was a few things to choose from, but I thought yeah. given the proximity to where you are in, in Tudingbeck there, that that would, that would hit the spot. It's one of those quirks, isn't yeah. it, that Grace has this extraordinary career, but at test level, it's comparatively modest. Yeah, I was thinking exactly that. And, uh, and also with the ball as well, because by the time he was playing test cricket, some of, some of his uh, brilliance was starting to be eroded, wasn't it? I mean, he was getting on a bit. And also his raw numbers always going to look a little bit manky because he was playing at a time when sides were routinely bowled out for 90 odd. Mm, so mm. you kind of, um, yeah, but that's, that was a nice one. Uh, it, it's, it's, isn't it an irritation? If only they'd started test cricket like 10 years earlier, then we might have really understood the sheer power of grace rather than having to sort of get it through comparisons in the early 1870s, that kind of thing, that, that incredible season when he got like all the centuries made in first-class cricket bar one or something, wasn't it, daft? Yeah, but, and, and the golden summer where he'd completed his, well, yeah. not only his thousandth run before the end of May, but wasn't it in the space of a month he hit over a thousand runs there too? We're, I think we're back in the 1870s for that. But yeah, anyway, there's yeah. there's Grace 170 and something else as well. So when I was at your place yesterday, I was balancing my computer on an edition of the Wisden Almanac 1977, which provided a, a chance for us to briefly talk about the summer of 1976. By sheer coincidence, when I got off the um, when I got on the tube and was checking my emails, I had one from an author named Nick Rogers who wanted to tell me about a book he's written. And I looked at the the review; it looks like it's published a couple of years ago, called 1976: Punk, Cricket, and London's Burning. So um, oh, it's yeah. a book about the topics we were referring to: the climate in the UK through the summer of 76 and the cricket that year and how those two things intersected and, and by the sounds of the title, punk rock as well, which was, you know, its origin story is there, I suppose, there in, in 76 and 77 through with the Sex Pistols and all the rest of it. I was going to say, very, very big Sex Pistols time. And it was, it was yeah. the year before the Silver Jubilee, mm. uh, which in 1977, which was amazingly an enormous thing, given that the Queen went on to have numerous further jubilees culminating in a 70-year one. And we thought, 25 years, that's a long old time. And uh, around that time, that's when the punk uh, movement really took off. And that's when you got, you know, God Save the Queen in a very specific fashion. Mm. Uh, the fascist <laughs> regime. Uh, and, the fascist and, regime. And, and so on and so forth. Um, but, yeah, so we, we do have the book club segment on the pod now, which we're trying to do one per month. Um, I've done a few of those. Uh, so maybe Nick's book, when it lands on or lands in my um, – in my uh, in my mail shoot, might end up being the uh, the candidate for that for February or March. Time will tell. Thank you, Nick, for getting in touch. We have one number to go, and it's for me, Jason Wilkins, 149 GBP, cons- continuing the theme of this week. None of them have been new numbers, all people who've come back and pledged a second or third time. So thank you, Jason, for that. The clue, I grew up playing brackets badly in a pavilion bearing this person's name. DC, for the second time in the show, please play the music. Just when you think, Daniel, that you've told the story of every legit DOB and other comes along. Now, by legit DOB, I mean DOB first wave. These are players from the interwar period, typically England players when things were just fast and loose. And it stands to reason. You look at the history of the time post-World War One. you've told the story many times about Major Bennett becoming the captain of his county with no credentials to do so. Such was the volatility of the time with so many men and so many cricketers, for that matter, dying and perishing uh, in World War One. We haven't done quite so many from the Australian side of things, but there's a bit of that too. And this relates to an Australian cricketer 
indeed the, Australia, the 149th Australian man to play test cricket. Uh, a one test wonder as well, which makes it all the better. Uh, the criteria for DOB is not many test matches. We don't know a lot about them, but their, their backstory is one worth knowing. So it is for Harry Alexander, known as the Bull. He bowled right arm fast, right arm hostile. And the test he was selected to play in is very much in the context of the series it was in. We'll come to that later. So the Bull Harry Alexander was born in 1905 in Ascot Vale in Melbourne. Uh, and sure enough, played his club cricket for Essendon, which is just up the road there, the, the ground at Windy Hill from Ascot Vale. Gets his first crack. What kind of, a, what, 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 what kind of a, an area is that? I'm, I'm not familiar with the sort of, uh, you know, the, the demographic breakdowns within Melbourne. Then it would have been quite working class. Uh, inner Northwest. I'm from the other side of town. I'm from the outer southeast, so I don't know uh, Ascot Vale too well, certainly uh, not going back over a century. But I, I, my instinct is that Essendon and that area was pretty working class as well. And it feels like the Bulls from that kind of background too when you go through his career. Gets his first crack for Victoria in 1928-29, and it leaves a lasting impression. So makes his debut against Tasmania, which was kind of the custom at the time for Victorian state sides. They'd, they'd play their new players in the non-shield fixtures. So they'd play Tasmania a couple of times a year, once home and once away, and there was often huge scores run up against them, and we've talked about those across story times in, in the past. And he, he gets a game against Tassie, takes three for, and that's in February 1929. Two weeks later, he's selected to play the MCC, on that brilliant Chapman-led tour where they, they win 4-1. And like, there's a fair bit going on in this game at the G. The Victorians make 572, which is fairly substantial against Larwood, Tate, Leyland and co. Freeman, Titch. Indeed, Titch Freeman took four for 245 out of that from 55 Ooh. overs, um, as Jeff and I have That's reflected upon. a tough paper upon. around that. Yeah, well, <laughs> to do a Titch, right, that was a, a thing um, to take a, a bag of wickets for a lot of runs, and Freeman made an art form of that. Bill Woodfull made 275 not out for the Victorians. Unfortunately, they were declared on, so... It was 572 for nine. Woodfull open, took the first ball. And Dainty Ironmonger down the other end was four not out. I don't know why they declared because they've, they've deprived Woodfull the chance of carrying his bat. Anyway, 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 it happened. The MCC in reply made 303. And our man, the bull, Harry Alexander, uh, took the new ball and, and took four for 98. Bold Hammond. Not a, not a bad effort. I guess the challenge or the problem there is that Hammond was on 114 at the time. Uh, bowled Larwood as well. Took the new ball, bowled with genuine pace, so the report says. The MCC then were asked to follow on. So despite making 303, as you pointed out earlier in the show, the follow-on was a fait accompli. Then it wasn't – I think we're beyond the point where it was compulsory follow-ons. I think that uh, I think that stopped yeah, a beyond, little bit Yeah, we're beyond earlier. that, but it was – but they, they just sort of still did it for some reason. It yeah. was almost like it was a knee-jerk reaction, wasn't it? Right, like you'd earned the chance to do it and therefore you did. So following on, Jardine is opening, as he did throughout 1928-29, and the bull gets right up him. And according to one obituary, um, Jardine didn't like this too much, and he complained to the umpire that the bull was running on the pitch. So he had to go around the wicket to complete his spell, and Jardine stored that away in the memory bank. Jardine gets 115, uh, as, um, as well, uh, so uh, after Hammond got 114 in the first innings and, and the game is saved for the MCC. But Harry Alexander, six wickets in the match in his second first-class fixture, he's, you know, he's on the radar. He's on the agenda. His next first-class game was also against the MCC. Now, this came up on the weekly show with Jeff. 
So I, I've told this Jeff this bit already, but I'll, I'll tell it to you as well. His next first class game was in the November of 1929 when the MCC were back. Now, my first instinct was, what the fuck were they doing in Australia in 1929-30? Well, they swung through and played every state side before going to New Zealand for those test matches. So they played a full book of um, state fixtures against all six states who were playing first-class cricket, of course, by that point, including Tassie. And they played them between the end of October and the middle of December before jumping across the Tasman and playing that inaugural test series against New Zealand. So that gave the Victorians another crack at the MCC only nine or ten months after Harry met Jardine. I mean, those those games must have been... Because that would have been really costly to do. I mean, if you read... Simon Wilde's splendid book, The Tour. Which is on the um, shelf next to where you're recording this right now, is it not? It is, yeah, it is. It's, it's one, of my, one of my favourite books of the year. No no spoilers, though, uh, as to what might win. Because uh, we, we haven't decided yet. Quite genuinely, we haven't decided. <laughs> but but the, tour, the tour is going to feature in my shortlist. I saw uh, I saw Phil Brown took that marvellous photo um, a couple of weeks ago of um, uh, of Jasbit Boomer dismissing Ollie Pope but with the reverse shot angle. You know how um, Brownie yeah. has the remote camera of the users as well. And, like, for all money, it is just, I mean, that will be the photo of the year or Shamar Joseph. No, not Shamar Joseph. My apologies. It was the, the off spinner from the West Indies whose name I haven't got stored to memory because I wasn't covering that series. Doing a backflip with his first test yes. wicket and landing yes. and they got the photo midair uh, like he's levitating or something like that. You would imagine one of those two photos will win the MCC photo of the year in the same way that you do the MCC Wisdom Book of the Year. This is the, the same competition but for photo, photo journalists. But I'm sure it'll ultimately be won by like a – uh, a, a nice whimsy shot of like the covers being blown up or, um, oh. a, you know, like a, a panoramic shot taken on an iPhone of like um, some cricket being played on a Maidan where Steve Wars, well, hit, that, that's, like, Steve Wars hit the button or something say, like that. That's the one. It's, it's, where, it's where you've got like uh, at dusk, at dusk somewhere, yeah. slightly dusty with a golden light exactly. and everybody's under the age of 14 <laughs> and the stumps are made out of, out of elephant's teeth or something dreadful. Yeah. And, and ideally, um, yeah. ideally the photo's <laughs> taken by a celebrity, which is, you know, helps if Steve Wall's the ideally. one who's, who's um, had the shot ideally. set up for him to hit the button. You know, anyway, I digress. But just, 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 to get, just to get back to the tour point, though, you know, t- tours were rigidly uh, designed to make money. Uh, I mean, yeah. they had to make money. So those crowds must have been pretty substantial. I mean, to, to encourage the MCC to do a six-state tour, that's a lot of effort. It's taking a lot of money. It's, it's dragging people around the country before aeroplanes, taking a lot of time. It's, I mean, the cost in personnel is amazing to end up going on a tour that... And the MCC were pretty good at this, actually. I mean, if you read the, the book, they would do tours to keep cricket alive in places where they weren't going to make as much money and New Zealand wouldn't have been a very lucrative tour just because of the, the demographics and the numbers of people involved and what have you. So I'm imagining there would have been some serious people rocking up to these games in order to have made it worth their while back in November 1929. That would have been tasty. It all kind of stands to reason. So, I mean, but it's not the full strength side because remember they split the teams in two. Half yeah. of them went to the Caribbean. Well, not half, but a decent number of first-choice players were in the Caribbean in matches that would be retrospectively defined as test cricket. That's more in the February, March, April of 30 and yeah, in on the other side of the world that these matches are being played in Australia and subsequently New Zealand. Anyway, so it's, it's certainly not Gilligan. It's, it's Gilligan captaining this team. It's certainly not the team that Chapman had um, 12 months prior. Oh, and of course, Gill- Gill- Gilligan, we would have mentioned before, the secretary of the British Union of Fascists. Mm, yeah. And, and a man who went to my school. Did he? My, I didn't my know school, school as well. Yeah. 
Yes, your I, school I was, has well, a bit of a was... habit of these things, right? I mean, you've it, had. Well, a... I was going to say a little N- bit. N- Nigel, Nigel, Nigel Farage. <laughs> <laughs> Shared values, you might say. Well, it's starting to look a bit like that, isn't it? Nigel Farage and and uh, and, and Arthur Gilligan and uh, Arthur went on, of course, to become a, a Test match special commentator, and alongside C. B. Fry who famously had a chapter in his 1939 autobiography about Hitler, whom he uh, waxed lyrical about, uh, about what a great man he was. So, um, you know, maybe the Daily Telegraph is right. Maybe TMS has gone woke because it no longer has the former secretary of the British Union of Fascists and notorious Hitler lover C.B. Fry on it. What's the world coming to? Uh, very good, Daniel. Uh, very good. So, um Let's go back to the bull, Harry, shall we? His first shield, so that MCC game, neither here nor there for him. His first shield game was December 1929, a month on from this. New South Wales made 402, but Harry takes the threefer and he clean bowls Don Bradman. Now, Bradman's on 89 at the time, but in much the same way that he was good enough to get through Hammond's defences, getting through Bradman's as well a year on is significant. So he only takes 12 wickets at 54 in the season, 1929-30. But again, it feels like he's on the agenda, gets picked for the rest against the Australian eleven at the start of the next season, 1930-31. And that was a fairly significant game at the time. That was the, the test trial, as they used to call them back then. And if you were in the rest, it meant that, well, by definition, you're in, in the second eleven. And he may not have had much of a career to speak of by that point, but there were people who were keen on him. And in that game, or sorry, in the next game he plays at the SCG, he gets Bradman again. This is against New South Wales. Also, Kipax, McCabe and Fingleton. So, again, there's this, there's this body of work that's building, you would say. You jump forward to 1932-33 and it's body line. Then England do as England do. Jardine does as Jardine does. And early in the season, Victoria are playing New South Wales and Harry takes seven for 95. He doesn't dismiss Bradman, but Bradman's playing for New South Wales and gets to see Harry Alexander up close. You know, he's dismissed him twice in two games. Now he gets to watch him from the dressing room take seven for 95. And, you know, after Brisbane in the Bodyline series, Australia are 3-1 down. They've lost the Ashes. And I suppose as a means of trying to square up to an extent, Bradman and co pick Alexander to come in for the final test match. So they've already seeded the urn, but... You know, there's pride to play for, and they and they think Alexander might have the right attributes, shall we say, to get up the palms. And he might, he might be able, he might be able to hit some of them. I guess is the other part of it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this, this was very this was very much English selection policy in the 1980s when the West Indies would keep on getting at them. They would then pick somebody who they hoped would be able to bowl pouncers, <laughs> and they would disappear over deep backward square leg off the bat of Viv Richards. But yeah, I'm, I'm guessing Harry Alexander had a little bit more success. It, it feels that way. So 4.35 Australia make batting first, but Harry gets a start, 17 not out from 17 balls, gallops into the game. Then he's given the first over. Unfortunately, he only gets one wicket in that first innings, and you press fast forward to the fourth innings of the match. England have fought their way back in splendidly, and they took a first innings lead. They only require 164 to win. Jardine's opening in the chase. And he remembers this bloke from four years ago. He's the guy who he got pinged for running on the pitch. So after a couple of balls, he goes up to the umpires and makes the case again. This Alexander fella, he's running on the pitch. You're going to have to ask him to bowl around the wicket. So in response to this, Alexander bowled exclusively bounces from around the wicket, hit a number of, hit Jardine, hit a number of the England players on the body that were batting in this fourth innings. The crowd absolutely loved it. It wasn't strictly speaking body line because he didn't have the ring field in the leg side trap. So it was just bowling bumper after bumper 
in frustration. But I suppose his point was made. There was some resistance to Jardine specifically and, and the team more widely. The Wisden Almanac described it as a disgraceful exhibition, which is kind of amusing when yes. you consider what was going on in the other test yeah. matches. Um, Harry's response himself was, part of a fast bowler's trade is to give him a few up the ribs. It keeps him honest. Uh, I suppose that's true. So um, he, he, he made his mark there. He only took one wicket for the match, none for 25 in that innings. And that's him done as a test player. One and done in Australia lose the series oh. and that match, of course, 4-1. Didn't feature at all uh, for the Vicks uh, in a little while after that. In 1934-35, doesn't play a single game, unclear why. But he gets picked on the unofficial tour of India in 1935-36. That's one of those, um, you know, they're not quite test tours. They're called unofficial test matches and all the rest of it. Takes a fifer in one of those games, but that's it. The last time he plays first-class cricket, it is in India on the unofficial test tour. 41 matches, 95 wickets at 34, with his 7 for 95, his test best. That's obviously before World War II when the war starts. He's deployed to Crete, the Middle East and the Pacific as a warrant officer in the army. After the war, he moves to Uroa as a wool classer. That's where Merv Hughes was born. I guess it would have been a couple of decades after the war. And Harry got him interested and involved in civic life. He got himself elected to the local council and was quite influential in municipal politics. Sufficiently so that the Memorial Oval in Euroa, remembering our clue at the start related to the pavilion yeah. being named, was named after him. It was named the Harry Alexander Pavilion at Memorial Oval and he insisted that the ground be built to identical MCG dimensions. So a little bit similar to JP Getty at Wormsley with Lords, right? Yeah. He made that ground exactly yeah. the same there. Well, there is a ground built to have the d- same dimensions as the MCG. It's in Euroa in rural <laughs> Victoria up north a wee bit. And he had this much, well, had that much clout that he was able to get you know, his old rivals, the MCC, to actually come to Euroa twice, once in 1951 and once in 1965 when they were touring to play against Victoria Country, which were fixtures that were non-first class, but they would tend to play a few of these state country 11s. And yeah, in 1951, it was a two-day game. Victoria were all out for 97. Statham took a threefer, but they didn't have time to get their target of 98. So I assume there was rain floating about. None for 64 with Hutton 40 not out when they shook hands. And unfortunately in 1965, rain intervened as well and they didn't get to bowl a single ball. But again, there's this this influence that, that Alexander has mm. all the way through. And that must be why Jason is referring to our number in question 149 for I'm certain that Harry Alexander is the pavilion in Euroa. He must have grown up there. So it all ties together rather splendidly. He won and well, he won. He was awarded an MBE in 1972 for services to cricket, uh, the bull Harry Alexander. And when he passed away in 1993, I think you mentioned earlier today, earlier in the show, rather the oldest living English test cricketer. I can't remember who it was, but one of your answers related to someone who was 95 when they passed away who was the oldest living English test cricketer. Well, that's what the bull was. He was 88 when he died in 1993. The bloke who gave it back to Jardine, cap number 149, Harry, the bull, Alexander, an eventful 41 uh, games of first-class cricket. And I assume a pavilion that still holds his name now in Euroa for Jason Wilkins. That's genuinely beautiful. And, and I think that there is a rule that every final word has in some way to have a passing mention of Douglas Jardine. This has quite a big one. So I'm... I'm utterly delighted by that. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly baffled as to if he's coming around the wicket and bowling these bounces, why they didn't just stick a few leg slips in. He might yeah. as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm also kind of imagining a bit like Neil Wagner pinging it in from round the wicket to left-handers. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I can, I'm, I can sort of, I, I'm sort of envisioning that, but in a mirror image. 
Well, isn't know? it isn't it the case that Jardine himself got body lined by the West Indies the following year and made a made a hundred, right? So uh, he did, yeah. Um, the, yeah. Uh, look, <laughs> divisive figure to say the least, but gave it absolutely, took it when required. And, um, you know, his record in Australia speaks for itself, I suppose, both in 28-29 in, in Chapman's side as a very successful batter and then clearly as captain in 32-33. So there aren't many players that have been to Australia twice and won twice, right? Uh, no, very few that I can think of. It'll be, you, well, it'll be that. It'll be, there, but yeah, it'll be that team. It'll be, because yeah. outside of that team, it might have been the case in the late 1890s, 19th, maybe. Yeah, 18, yeah, yeah. Late, late 19th century, England won a couple of times in a row. But, you know, the broader point stands that Jardine's uh, career in Australia was most successful. And also just saving that in the memory bank, remembering that game from four years prior, not surely, you know, it's not like it's now when you have access to stats and analysis and the internet and so on. That's just him having a high cricket IQ and remembering, hang on, I think from memory, this is the dude I made bowl round the wicket all those years ago in a nondescript tour game uh, and um, and rolled out that information when it mattered in a test match, albeit uh, uh, the cause and effect there being he got hit on the body himself, but I suppose small price to pay to, to piss the Australians off one last time in the final innings of body line. Yeah, he wouldn't mind that. And he, he's like an elephant, a very long memory, Jardine. He, he, would, have, he, would, have, he would easily have borne a grudge for four years. He, he bore grudges for 40 years. Uh, and Daniel, that, that brings us to the end of our, our show today. So as we said when we began the recording, it'll probably take another six or seven days before it actually is released. But it's been most enjoyable uh, doing this with you again. It always is going to South uh, going to South London, going to Tooting Beck and sitting on your sofa and doing a thing. I should remind people that you and I recorded a whole bunch of uh, Calling the Shots. Uh, what do we call them again? We uh, Not uh, revisits. We had a word for it. Director's Cut. The Director's Cut. Director's of, Cut. Uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of yeah. the, uh, of yeah, the like. uh, Calling the Shots Eps, the documentary that we made about the 100 years of cricket broadcasting. We're probably in... The, because we, we were fudging the numbers at the time, weren't we? In 2020, when we made it, we said the century of cricket broadcasting and it was like 96, 97 years. Well, now yeah, in, we're there, aren't we? Now in 2024, I've got a feeling 1924 is the very first cricket broadcast. So um, go back and, and take that in. Uh, thank you to all of our pledges. I mentioned before they were all revisits or all re-ups this week. If you're one of those, if you've been with us before, send in another pledge with a clue that we can decipher ideally or no clue at all. You want to send us a free hit we can have a frolic and then we can answer your number in, in the revisits at a, at a later date that Jeff and I do a couple of times a year. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. You can join our Discord channel. That will enable you to access all of the different conversations that's taking place. Be part of what we're doing in Edinburgh with the Lord's Tabs. Daniel, you're a proud taverner as well. Um, we've got yeah. a target of £30,000 to raise for the marathon, half marathon and 10K. We signed up two new people to the 10K last night, so we must be getting close to 50 runners, um, which is a, a huge thing. A lot of events going on and, and we love the tabs for all of what they do. So you can donate to that straight away. Don't wait. Uh, in the show notes, there's a link to um, send some money through to that collective group fundraising effort. And um, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Seabus Super, uh, who make all of what we do possible throughout the course of the Australian summer. Uh, okay, Daniel, uh, a pleasure as always. Uh, let's do it again soon. Anything else? Uh, what? Yeah, one last thing. Uh, just, just to wish you a very uh, good trip as you head back out into the antipodes mm. to, um, to ply even more of your trade. We'll miss you. But uh, you, you'll be out in New Zealand. I'm deeply jealous because it's a country, you know. Can you believe it? All these years covering cricket that I have yet to visit. And uh, I, 
I massively need to um, uh, I need to rectify that. Let's try and rectify great. it when uh, when England are playing in New Zealand this time next year. I think in December. Memory. Yeah, December, I, I, I would love to do that. But you have a great time, and all I the will. best of luck in Melbourne with the um, with the awards ceremony. And uh, <laughs> I'll be keeping my fingers crossed for you. Yeah, but hugely we'll, richly deserved. Between times, we've got Winnie's uh, fourth birthday tomorrow, and then her birthday party on Sunday. So we sneak that in before I head off, which will be uh, most exciting. Don't tell her this, but we've got an Elsa impersonator from Frozen to come and spend an hour with us in the local hall, which will just send her into delirium. It's the oh thing that kids goodness. do. It's the thing that kids do. You get a Disney character to come along to the birthday party. I've been to a few of these now. So um, I don't know whether it'll be a, a huge shock to her when Elsa walks in the door, but I, I hope that she'll be. I hope it doesn't prompt a meltdown. Like with kids at this age, it can go one or two ways. <laughs> so uh, hopefully yeah. she... Um, well, it's, it's, also when, it's also when Elsa leaves, that's going yeah. to be the challenge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, good, good luck with that bit. <laughs> yeah, hopefully she can sing. For, I'm sure part of the gigs for her to sing to them and, and Winnie will get well and truly involved in that. Okay, Daniel, I'll let you get about your day. This has been The Final Word. Thank you so much for listening to Storytime 170. We'll do it again soon. Have a nice weekend. So you know what I meant here. I had to go.